Maybe I can sink in just that little bit where I had that brilliant joke about fucking garden gnomes. That I, could just... <laughs> I, I should have that, yeah. I, it, should, it should be saved, yes. See, see if I can stick it as a little Easter egg. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I even had an I even had a nice response to the garden gnomes joke, so we could discontinue it there if you want to. But... Uh, it feels a little forced now. Oh, okay, that's fair. Plus, I wouldn't want you to ruin the brilliance of my joke. <laughs> yeah, with with my shitty edition. No, I, I'm with you. That's right. <laughs> the following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome to episode 95 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. I'm your host, Lee Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm on top of the world, man. All right. <laughs> and we're joined by our special guest host, making his return. He is a author, podcaster, musician, all-around renaissance man, Kit Power. Uh, honestly, I just want to be somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to be talking about two films that uh, were suggested by Kit, and we're continuing our crime series here. Before we get into that, I just want to remind everybody that our little sub-podcast that I'm doing now, Blood on the Tracks, which is dedicated to soundtracks and scores, should be up before you hear this episode. I, I know I announced it on the Facebook group as showing up on Monday, but because I'm a graveyard shift worker, I lose track of time and days and what day is what which. And I thought Monday was the last day of this month, but apparently not. So, yeah, look for that. I think we can just move directly on to anything we've watched in the last little while. So I'll throw it over to you, Kit. Uh, yeah, so I've uh, not a lot of movies, but I've I've been catching up on a TV show called Line of Duty, uh, which is a, a British police crime drama series that I'd somehow missed. I'd heard about it, but I'd not got around to watching it. We jumped in, my missus and I, on season four, and then we found the first two seasons on uh, Netflix. So we've been sort of binge watching on that to catch up with it. It's just really, really fun. That's all. It's it's about internal police anti-corruption units. So it's policing the police is kind of the the thrust of it. It's got Vicky McClure, who's an actress who was in This Is England, which is one of the finest uh, series. They did a, it started as a movie and then I did a mini series um, for, I think there's four in total. Uh, just incredible drama. And she, Vicky McClure is one of those. I mean, it's a, a superb ensemble part. She was a standout actress in that and she's really good in this as well. Very different character in Line of Duty. It's just really fun. I mean, it's kind of, it's got the usual issue you always have with uh, this kind of drama of it's just the convoluted nature of the plotting and just the kind of, uh, the sheer volume of crazy shit that happens to these people is clearly like, you'd get one case like that per lifetime in real life. So you have to kind of, you have that suspension of disbelief issue. That's the hurdle you've got to get over. But once you do get over that and just strap in, man, it's just fun. And there's a different guest star for each season playing the person they're investigating. So it's like Lenny James in season one, who's gone on to do a ton of work in The Walking Dead, um, who's just, and he's a superb actor. 
Adrian Dunbar's the kind of hard-bitten Catholic Irish chief superintendent of the anti-corruption mm. unit. He's wonderful. Oh my god, he's so much fun. Uh, he does have echoes of the uh, of the guy from LA Confidential, a different actor, but you know he has echoes of that kind of vibe to him somehow. Although he's oh, yeah. a good guy. He's, he's unambiguously the good guy in line of duty. But yeah, it's just been a blast. That's all. It's just really, really good fun. So uh, yeah, that's what I've been watching the last uh, couple of weeks or so. Excellent. Uh, this is England. That was the skinheads. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 That's what I thought it was. Yeah, right on. I've just been rewatching season two of The Office, The American Office, which is might be the single greatest season of this, of sitcom history as far as I'm concerned at this point. <laughs> Uh, the only thing I'll mention is I uh, I have this uh, I I wouldn't want to say guilty pleasure because some of the movies are actually pretty good but I've I've just had been addicted to watching Liam Neeson play action heroes <laughs> in the last few years <laughs> yeah. so so uh, I I took a chance on uh, Run All Night the other day sort of enjoyed it. it it's not a great film Liam Neeson plays a uh, sort of a retired hitman whose son gets in trouble with the local mob he works for. And so he has to protect his son. Ed Harris is the mob boss, basically puts a hit out on him. I'm sort of wondering, and I I have to go back and look at this, but I think there must be some sort of clause in Liam Neeson's contract now where every action movie he does, he gets one badass phone call where he just, (laughs) he he talks tough to to the bad guy on the other end of the phone because he has that here as well, like he hasn't taken all the time. So uh, that's kind of enjoyable, but... um, Otherwise, it's it's not a great film. It's it's just kind of a easy, don't care about it kind of uh, watch if you if you're interested. But uh, uh, yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Yeah, I've I've seen that one. My missus is a big Liam Neeson fan, so I see most of them sooner or later. I I liked that. I thought it was a fun film. I like the kind of. For me, what I enjoyed was just the kind of if I remember rightly on that one, the the violence is quite kind of, it's. I mean, realistic's too strong a word, but it's quite gritty, isn't it? It's quite kind yeah. of, uh, and the the gangsters are not glamorous. Nothing about it is glamorous. In fact, it's very, if I remember rightly, it's quite a dirty movie, isn't it? It's quite kind of, yeah. And I I enjoy that kind of vibe in my crime movie. I've got to be honest. I think that can be. Uh, and I thought it was quite well played, if I remember. Yeah. Yeah, there's some good stuff in it. Uh, although they do sort of uh, tend towards giving it a bit of a flashy package. Like some of the camera work is like a little too self-indulgent, I think. And sure. then there's the character of the other hitman that's uh, sent out after uh, Liam Neeson's son, who almost starts becoming like a horror movie uh, villain <laughs> at, 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 yeah. at one point. Well, he gets his face burned off and he still keeps coming. And Right. But but other than that, it, it's, it's fairly enjoyable. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. Liam Neeson makes me... Uh... I kind of want there to be one of these Star Wars one-off movies where he plays a younger Qui-Gon Jinn and he gets to uh, do the badass phone conversation <laughs> through the through the Norelco Razor thing that he had in episode one, you know? <laughs> you know I'm going to find you and I'm going to slice you in half with my lightsaber. That'd be so good. <laughs> I've acquired a certain set of skills, Jedi mind trick skills. Uh, I, mean... I feel like they should be a mashup now. To make well, me a I mean, nightmare to stormtroopers like you. Yeah, I think there's. I think we're onto something. Yeah. Yeah. Although you know, if it was George Lucas who was still running the series, it, it would it would have been just like the prequels. So it would have been, I'm going to find you and I'm going to debate you in the Senate. Yes. We're going to be- find you and I'm going to test you for midichlorians. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be a trade agreement. There's going to be a lot of paperwork. You're going to have to. You're going to have to fill these things out in triplicate. Yeah. yeah. 
and there and look at my racist sidekick. That's yeah. <laughs> and there may be some pod racing. <laughs> but yeah. All right. We'll take a little break and then when we come back, we're gonna be talking about white heat. Bad movies. The world is full of them. From low-budget crap fests to downright unwatchable. And only two men are willing to watch them all. So climb in and take your seat. This is Short Bus Cinema. Let's do it. Hey everyone, this is Johnny Krug from Kruger Nation. And this is Rick Morgan from the Helming Power Hour. We have decided to team up and take you where no one has gone before. We're on a quest to find the world's worst movie, and we're doing it on the bus. Driving through cult classics in every genre to find the holy grail of bad movies. So if you're looking for something different and more fun than you can stand, then climb on in. Short Bus Cinema is a proud member of Legion Podcasts. That's right, yo. Short Bus Cinema. We'd love to watch the movies you hate. Hello, and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, 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 and he said, bark, 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 and she said, bark, 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 bark. that's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner, the other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? The <laughs> boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, this is the Doomed Show, is available on hellodoomedshow.podomatic.com. Dot com and doomedmoviethon.com Hello, hello, this is the Doom Show, Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. It's the Doom Show. Hello, hello, this is the Doom Show, Slashers, G.I. Low and Horror. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. Alright, White Heat from 1949.
the Cody? Cody, huh? You got a good memory for names. Too good. How do you like that, boys? A copper. And I was going to split 50-50 with a copper. <laughs> now tell me you're glad to see me. Only say hello. All I wanted was for you to come back. That's the truth. I love you, Cody. I love you. Shower curtain. It was Big Ed. He told me to do it. You wouldn't kill me in cold blood, would you? Now let you warm up a little. Let him have it. Oh, no. And lose our ace in the hole? He's gonna walk us out of here. Ain't you, copper? Ed. Still got nerves. Directed by Raoul Walsh, written by Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts, based on a story suggestion uh, or something like that. This is an IMDb. I don't know how accurate that is. By Virginia Kellogg, starring James Cagney as Cody Jarrett, Virginia Mayo as Verna Jarrett, Edmund O'Brien as Hank Fallon, Margaret Witcherly as Ma Jarrett, Steve Cochran as Big Ed Summers, John Archer as Philip Evans, Wally Castle as Cotton Valetti. And Fred Clark as Trader Winston. And I'll let you get on to the synopsis there, Daniel. I am stealing this from the IMDb page myself because I completely fell down on the job and did no uh, prep for this episode. So, uh, Kit got him drunk last night. So, yeah, know. it was, it's, it's all Kit's fault. You know, I don't, I don't I, get drunk on my own. It was entirely. I accept full responsibility. Yep. I practically <laughs> put the bottle in his hand. <laughs> Figuratively. Um, yeah, yeah, so this is uh, written by someone named Tad Dibburn, um, and it is on the uh, IMDb page. So, Cody Jarrett is the sadistic leader of a ruthless gang of thieves. Afflicted by terrible headaches and fruits devoted to his ma, Cody is a volatile, violent, and eccentric leader. Cody's top henchman wants to lead the gang and attempts to have an accident happen to Cody while he is running the gang from in jail. But Cody is saved by an undercover, undercover cop who there befriends him and infiltrates the gang. Finally, the stage is set for Cody's ultimate betrayal and downfall during a big heist at a chemical plant. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> well, that's it. <laughs> Ironically, that gets that gets probably fifty percent of the actual plot right there. Yeah, well done, Tad. Yeah. Um <laughs> thank you, Tad Dibburn. We we're just completely ripping off uh, content from you at this point. Yeah, <laughs> some okay. random IMDb user. <laughs> well, well, we'll send them some of our uh, Audible money. Yeah, some of our, some of our fat checks, you know, yeah, <laughs> Dollar Shave Club. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Kit. You suggested these movies, and uh, I'll let you start off if you want to give your sort of initial impressions on this. When, when was the first time you watched this? 
Uh, it was several years ago. I mean, just just to the point. I mean, I I selected White Heat. Daniel came up with the idea of doing Night in the City for the pairing, and I, I and that was inspired. And I think we'll talk about that more when we get to Night in the City. But yeah, White Heat. It was several years ago. I bought a Jimmy Cagney box set. It was in a I think a January sale, is my memory, in in HMV. I came to Jimmy Cagney by way of the '90s TV show Cracker. The the main character, and that's played by Robbie Coltrane. He's called Fitz, and he's a massive Jimmy Cagney fan, and he keeps bursting into Jimmy Cagney and. <laughs> throughout the show and it and it, it interested me enough i knew enough about the writer of that show jimmy mcgovern to know that it was probably a bit of his love for cagney coming out in the script you know that was why he gave that quality to fit so when i saw this box set and it was it was four movies for i think 10 pounds or something I, I snapped it up white heat's one of the movies in the set it's also got public enemy angels with dirty faces i can't remember the other one but yeah so uh, and i watched white heat and i just i just loved it i've got a real kind of uh, fascination with the hollywood of this period i particularly like you know the, the 40s and early 50s movies i love the fact that everyone talks at 200 miles an hour you know i right. love the way everyone everyone talks like they're being paid by the word rather than the minute you know <laughs> <laughs> and it's like so i don't know why but something about that really appeals to me yeah i think there's so much for me white heat's just a stone classic it's as simple as that um just about everything that the movie's doing it does very well i think i mean you know the score is fantastic it's this massive kind of bombastic orchestral yeah. thing you know uh, very heavy on the brass the film itself i think the storytelling is you know remarkably tight for a film of the era i mean it starts off you know gangsters robbing a train you're right in there there's no mucking about i think that and i mean this is all stuff i'm sure we'll go into in more detail as we go in the conversation cagney is just a a, a mind-melting performer he's great in everything i've seen him in i think I, I think that this is probably his finest hour and a lot of that comes down to the story because he's older in this film this is one of his later movies and his character's older and right. one of the interesting thematic things that both films have got in common is the lead character is basically a rat in a trap from the very opening because the very be the very beginning of white heat he pulls off this you know this this train heist but the the cops are onto him and they like he really he actually doesn't have although he twists and turns and he tries to make moves he doesn't have a great deal of agency in terms of the overall story really like he is on a collision course with his own destiny from the very beginning of this film and that's actually kind of unusual with other gangster movies that he's done that's not always it doesn't always play out that way but like he's already kind of a gangster a guy on the edge he's already kind of at the end of his rope pretty much from the opening scene and then it really is just a question of how that plays out and watching how he twists and that gives the whole film a kind of atmosphere i think that's really interesting there's a kind of oppressive atmosphere to the whole film i think even before he gets put in prison there's a kind of a desperate quality to the movie that gives it an interesting kind of emotional weight as a, when you're watching it you know i think it gives it a real kind of intensity as a viewing experience i love the supporting cast his his wife girlfriend whatever she's kind of uh, she's kind of a um a pulp fiction cliche isn't she she's she's mm. very much the kind of the the backstabbing beautiful dame she's the lady macbeth type but i love the stuff with his ma i think that's really fun uh <laughs> And, and I think the actress who plays his mod does an, an amazing job with that as well. And she really kind of elevates. Again, 
I guess, kind of a cliche role, but she does so much with it that it, it's really good fun. You know, I love the big set pieces. I love the whole kind of, I love the whole sequence of the FBI where they explain, they have to explain how radio cars work because it's <laughs> 1949. And like, this is the idea that you could put a tracer on someone's car and follow it at a distance by following it with three cars. You're triangulating the source. I love all that. It's really like, there's no way you do anything remotely like that now. Uh, in a film you wouldn't need to but i love i love the way they take the time to explain this is the tech and how it works i like the insider the fbi insider i think he mm-hmm. he does it's another really fun performance and it's a great part he's really kind of uh he's really conflicted because he's in he's in near constant peril you know he's in a constant danger of being revealed for what he really is and that again just adds a layer of tension to the whole story especially the prison break where it's all going horribly wrong and you can see the guy desperately trying to calculate what the hell am i supposed to do now what do i yeah. you know and i love that i love i love the way the plot twists and turns um on him i love the ending i mean it's a it's a great it's a great way for a, for the story to play out i think it's you know a literally explosive ending you kind of can't <laughs> argue with that <laughs> so yeah that's it really i, th- I just think it's a, i think it's a great piece of work i think it's a great example of the genre uh and i think cagney's a, a wonderful performer and he's given it everything he's got in this and uh, and it's a great pleasure to watch all right uh, over to you daniel i agree with pretty much all that this is the first time i've seen it actually i it's always been on that list of like oh one day i'll go and watch white heat right. um i actually <laughs> torrented this a year ago <laughs> as part of the like oh i'm gonna watch white heat as part of uh just the movies i was watching in the background of the last time we did an noir series and then i never sat down and watched it which just goes to show you uh, what a fool i am um <laughs> Yeah, this is probably the first time I've ever seen a Cagney performance uh, full on. Um, I I, uh, don't think I've ever seen him in anything else except for, you know, clips here and there. He's mesmerizing. He's phenomenal. We could talk about some of the way the film handles the mental illness aspects of it, which are very 1949. (laughs) Let's just leave it at that. But it kind of works as screenwriter's conceit that, uh, you know, that that he's just sort of a tortured, psychopathic kind of guy. And, And this idea of him being... Uh, very, very much a mama's boy, very childish, but then very uh, violent and um, sociopathic with the other people in his life. That's something that we sort of see over and over again in, in kind of later gangster films and later crime films, which is interesting. I'm not sure this is like the first time you ever saw that, but it's certainly a uh, uh, an early example of it and a really, really phenomenal example of it. I do want to uh, just highlight something that uh, the kid was talking about in the, um, uh, the, the police technology bits, which are... Uh, <laughs> Both incredibly dated um, in that we would never expect that to be done today. You just go, oh, we put a tracer on the car. But I really like the idea that you get to see a little bit of just how the cops do what they do. I love the ABC card. We're going to use the ABC method today, boys. You know, yeah. <laughs> or yeah, and so you get like, oh, so they can follow her without them necessary, without her necessarily cottoning on to the idea that she's being followed. Although mm-hmm. she figures it out anyway because you know apparently they're just not that good at it because they're following for a distance of like eighteen feet or something <laughs> um you know yeah really clever guys you know yeah we just we just put a we put a handkerchief we're gonna mark the carpet handkerchief on the buffer then yeah, yeah so. it's pretty sweet um yeah i i always love i always love films from this era that do some of that like police procedural kind of stuff just because it, yeah it, it's it's just such a different time and place you know um and i love later on when they've got the the radio car thing and the the oscillators going and they're um you got the two guys are like drawing the triangulations on the giant board and it's like how many people are employed right now just trying to catch this one guy right <laughs> you know? yeah. like how many how many resources are we gonna throw into catching this guy 
Well, I assume they have to replace their uh, big uh, wall map after they solve this case too. So I wonder how many big wall maps they go through. <laughs> there's like a there's like a screen printer that's just like printing. Because <laughs> that can't be cheap in 1949. Oh so. no, no, not at all, not at all. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, they've only got a room full of radio operators going like, all right, it's a, this, you know, these two intersections. Okay, we're there. It's like, dude, you, don't you can't you just like figure out where they're going? Don't you have a guy on the inside who can maybe give you some of this information? No, no, we, we got we got to do the high tech thing. Um, apparently, yes. Cagney sort of insisted that that be included just to um, like, you know, crime doesn't pay kids. It, it seems like there's there's a little bit of that going on with why those sequences are, are in the film. But um, mm-hmm. it's it's a really it's a really fun watch and uh, definitely one I'll be revisiting at some point. Yeah, like you, this was the first time I've ever seen a full-fledged Cagney performance, and kicking myself for having not done it before now, but just loved it. I love that he's not the caricature that you would think he is when you just you know you just know the lines, you just know like people doing impressions of him and stuff like that. If you've never seen one of his performances, but man, he's so goddamn good. And the funny thing is, uh, like Kit mentioned, everybody's talking that fast in this film. Like it's not just him hamming up or eating the scenery. Everyone's talking like that. Everyone's talking like fucking Joe Pesci on on a coke bender, and <laughs> and Joe Pesci in his prime on a coke bender. Yes, that. absolutely. Yeah. Joe Pesci, Goodfellas era, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But but yeah, Cagney's really good. Uh, I guess this was the first gangster picture he did since the Roaring Twenties in nineteen thirty nine. So he he'd come back after like a unsuccessful string of comedies or whatever. He, he was trying to escape being typecast, but I mean, he just sinks right into the role he's totally believable as this just sawed off little psychopath again like you mentioned daniel the the mental health issues are not exactly uh tactfully uh, <laughs> presented here but i mean you know uh, what w- what do you expect from a, a movie in 1949 it's it's not like it's going to have a, a nuanced look at mental illness necessarily but just or even like it's all in his head so therefore it's not real you know like yeah. and he's a, he's a sociopath so he just, he does it for attention it's i mean it's there is a, there is a sense in which you can kind of do a modern reading of this in which this guy really is sort of a victim of a uh, social services system that just completely failed him in childhood <laughs> absolutely yeah definitely i do like that this was uh sort of inspired by uh, ma barker and her her boys like you have that you have that criminal mother criminal son relationship thing here where Cagney's mother in this is definitely not innocent she's she's a hardened criminal herself she she knows how to escape the police you know if she sees them coming and and she she tries to assert her authority on the entire gang while Cagney's in prison I I really enjoyed that and the actress who uh, does that uh, Margaret uh, Witcherly Really, really great performance. And I, honestly, even Virginia Mayo's performance here is really good, too, even though her part is a little bit more cliched. But, yeah, I just... I, I really liked her in the film. I, I, th- I think yeah. it, we maybe maybe damn her a little bit with faint praise. I mean, she's very good. It's just sort no, of... The, yeah, the, the issue was... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. The issue was nothing to do with the performance. That's who I agree with. I was, it, you know, with what she had on the page to work with, I think she did a superb job. This, mm-hmm. It takes nothing away from her as an actress to know that the character's a little one-dimensional because she's written. I mean, that's just it's just the reality of playing that character, isn't it? Just that that's in the writing. I think it's baked in. Yeah. Well, do you think do you think she actually cares for the big Ed guy, or do you think that? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think she cares about anybody in the film, or is no, she, she just, just going with the toughest? 
she just cares about who she can uh, latch onto and get the most out of. I, I, I mean, I, I think you can be a little more sympathetic than that with the reading if you want. And say, like, she's a survivor and she's just doing it. And, like, it, you know, a wo- being a woman in that world is incredibly fucking tough. And basically all you've got is arguably, you know, is like your attractiveness to fall back on so you glom on to whoever you think is going to be the most likely to survive the outcome you know i mean there's that really horrible horrible moment with that scene with big ed where he's you know where they're in the hideout you know and she he's just like i mean you know it's really threatening the way he's just like you know i'm gonna win this and then you're gonna stay with me you know it's like yeah you know she's she's totally trapped between a rock and a hard place with these two men in her life you know and uh i think you could if you wanted to read it that way you could just read it as like she's just really yeah she's she's a survivor she's trying to figure out what's what's my best bet for getting out of this in one piece yeah i could see that as well i i tend to fall on the side though that she's pretty much a femme fatale who's maybe just not quite as smart as most femme fatales you see in movies mm. where she maybe doesn't quite have as much willpower to uh, basically just control men and, and send them in different directions like you see in a lot of these films with, with with different characters i do like that this is able to balance basically a gangster film a prison film and a police procedural all, yeah. all in one picture i i, I really enjoy oh, and that a- train heist yeah just saying, he, and a heist he, movie yeah he, absolutely. He wrote it, two heist movies because yep. you know we, we get it we get a train heist at the beginning and then we get the chemical factory heist yeah, towards yeah, the yeah. end so um that was one thing i, I was going to mention that it, it does rotate through genres quite admirably yeah um it really is constructed as a series of set pieces and each set piece is kind of its own little movie yeah you know and this was the least claustrophobic prison i've ever seen in my life by the way i I don't know if you guys noticed this but i just found the scenes in the prison especially like in the mess hall and in the yard are Mm -hmm. just they're very roomy and expansive even like the uh the the little phone booth where you where you can meet up and and talk to someone even those rooms look bigger than what you usually see in in prison films You, you sort of get your noir kind of angles and and harsh uh lighting in the prison but it's big and expansive and and you can see like there's just one shot that goes right down the entire prison block and then goes right to like some big windows or whatever up shining down through into the prison and it looked really really good yeah the film looks gorgeous um not Mm. just i mean you're you're right about the 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 prison sequences and i particularly loved the yard or or not the yard the um the uh, work area the uh, the shop yeah yeah Yeah. um i really loved the way that looked Um, that was great Throughout the entire film, I mean, you know, there's there's a real sense of scope here. I mean, it's clearly not a, an expensive film, but they really knew kind of where to spend the money to to make it look um, like it probably cost more than it did. I know this yeah. was considered something of a cheapie, and it was shot on like six weeks or something, um, yeah. which even in 1949 is not a a huge production. By giving us kind of all these different set pieces, and by giving us all this different stuff to look at, I, I'm never I'm never bored watching this film. Um, no, even when we yeah, are in kind of a smaller like the. Um, uh, the cabin, the remote cabins, a couple of those, and uh, mm. you know. So anyway, I did, I really loved the way this film looked. Yeah, yeah. and I anyway. just to just to build on that. I mean, both the the tra- both the high sequences you mentioned are uh, they they feel big scale, don't they? The the chemical factory feels ginormous. The train looks superb. I also just wanted to pull out briefly if we're talking about while well, we're talking about the the good looking cinematography. So like the the car chase, twenty minutes in the night the night shot car chase. 
Or mm-hmm. I, you know, that there's some lovely like cinematography in that. You know, just some beautiful shots of these cars bombing through the night. You know, it just I, I think that looked amazing. Some of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I wanted to mention the uh, the special effects in this are pretty good too. Like this was before they had squibs, mm-hmm. so all that bullet flying around are actually <laughs> low velocity bullets being shot at the actors by, by marksmen. So, <laughs> Can so anyone something... believe they made movies that way? That's just so amazing. Something oh, yeah. tells me the Screen Actors Guild will not allow that these days. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, yeah. I, it, it would be, uh, ma- imagine, oh man. The, imagine the if they risk, were... Yeah, the risk assist. <laughs> Jesus. Imagine if they were still doing that and, you know, The Crow came along and... Ooh. <laughs> ooh. Yeah. <laughs> too soon? Uh, <laughs> too, too late? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't soon. know. <laughs> I, I don't know. How many, people, how many people below the age of 30 even would get that reference at this point? <laughs> that's <true>. yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah. We're a bunch of old guys. It's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah. We did just carbon date ourselves with that particular. <laughs> with, with the crow reference. Oh, yeah. I completely know exactly what you're talking about, Lee. Yeah. Th- that event happened 25 fucking years ago. Yeah. That's... And that's our, like, go to somebody died on a set. That's you know? our pop culture reference, kids. <laughs> up, up to the microsecond pop culture reference. Here, they must be destroyed. Hey, if they're going to know at least one 90s film, it's got to be the most 90s film ever made in the 90s. My God! Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, my wife has been watching Tank Girl lately, which is that's pretty. We, oh. we have to cover at some point, but anyway. <laughs> oh, geez, I remember that film. It's pretty good. I was I I I'd never seen. I was like, wow, this is actually quite interesting. I would. There's definitely a lot of stuff going on here. I anyway. remember. I remember Ice T as a dog character of some sort or something. I literally glanced up. I had heard his voice, and I glanced up and then saw him in the makeup and went, wait a minute, that's Ice-T, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I hadn't been watching it. I was, I was like, had my headphones in, and she's like, yeah, that's Ice-T. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We're good. So, anyway, uh, White yeah. Heat. We should <laughs> come yeah. back to the film we're talking about, right? I don't think I have any more, like, really deep thoughts about this, because, like I said, this is, like, a first-time watch for me. So I'm definitely going to revisit it and watch it a lot more in the in the future but i just thoroughly enjoyed this a lot um, i'm glad that it was suggested for the podcast and that we finally got around to it and i mean just this makes me want to find more james cagney performances yeah. because wow uh, it's he just leaps right off the screen it's, it's amazing yeah and on on that and on the mental health stuff i mean i think that the interesting thing about cagney is it is i mean it is a big performance it is a broad performance but it, it he I, I mean i think you said it lee but like but he manages somehow to avoid caricature he somehow manages to avoid ridicule and i think that just comes down to the sheer intensity of it I think when you get those close-ups on his face and he's glaring down the camera, he's kind of like he's just daring you to laugh, and you can't because mm. he's too fucking scary. You know, like yeah. he's really hardcore. And even when he's doing the kind of head clutching, rolling around, moaning stuff, and it's and it is hammy. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that it's kind of melodramatic. He just sells it with sheer conviction and energy. I think, and uh, you know, you can't help but be just impressed with the sheer kind of dark charisma that you're seeing on the screen. It's, it's mesmerizing stuff. He does good quiet moments too. Like where he catches Hank trying to escape from the hideout uh, during the night. And then they're, they're just talking and he leans up back against the tree. And I was just out there in the woods talking to Ma. And this is after his mother died. So he's like, yeah, I was just 
having a conversation with her and I really, you know, it really calmed me down. It's like, wow, this guy's, this guy's crazy. <laughs> He's... Yeah. And uh, Hank has to basically sit there and still lie and pretend to be part of his gang when he's he's basically just watching this stone psychopath talk about how crazy he actually is. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a great scene too as well, isn't it? Because he's so... I mean, the other guy is so scared because he really is like... It's like mm-hmm. I could get exposed at any minute and then it's game over because I know how nuts this guy is. Yeah, it's beautifully played because there's so many layers going on there, you know, in that performance for him where it's like he's got to play along but at the same time he's got to let us know that he's absolutely shitting his pants like, please, please let me get out of here alive. Great stuff. Yeah, it's funny that Edmund O'Brien, we almost overlook him because Cagney's so good. And so yeah. just uh, compulsively watchable because you could you could absolutely see this being a little bit more from uh, Edmund O'Brien's character's point of view. Yeah. Like you, you sort of imagine this as, as a little bit more his story where he's going after this sort of violent but sort of faceless bad guy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that we instead kind of focus on Cagney's character really gives us a... Uh, a lot more insight into who he is, despite the fact that I think uh, the film doesn't quite really want to tell us who he is beyond, you know, he's he's a psychopath. You know, mm. we're not asked to kind of look into his psychology. It's, it's, we're just kind of asked to, I guess we're not asked to sympathize with him. We're just asked to follow him. Yeah. Um, I do have a review from 1949 in the New York Times. Oh, yeah. Um, and, oh, cool. um, yeah, if you Google White Heat, I mean, it comes up on the first page. So I, I did, um, just just to just to kind of um get across kind of how people saw it at the time yeah um he says uh for the simple fact is, is that mr cagney this is by a guy named uh, let's see bosley crowther oh. uh, who apparently is there <laughs> yeah bosley crowther of course that's his name <laughs> is there is there a more 1949, <laughs> 1949 I'm, I'm a film critic for the new york times <laughs> than possible <laughs> yeah. if he didn't exist we'd have to invent him yes <laughs> Um, it starts off, you know, Warner Brothers weren't kidding when they put the title White Heat on the new James Cagney picture, which came to the Strand yesterday. They might have gone several points higher in the verbal caloric scale and still have understated the thermal intensity of this film. But the simple fact is that Mr. Cagney has made his return to a gangster role in one of the most explosive pictures that he or anyone has ever played. Um, and then they kind of go on and talk about the, uh, like, the, the just the sheer level of violence in the film. Um, if that is inviting information to the cohorts of thriller fans, whose eagerness this reviewer can readily understand, let us soberly warn that White Heat is also a cruelly vicious film and that its impact upon the emotions of the unstable or impressionable is incalculable. <laughs> that, is an obs- that is an observation which might fairly be borne in mind by those who would exercise caution in supporting such matter on the screen. Um, oh. You got you got to love the way uh, film critics wrote 1949. Right? My, my yeah. God, is 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 he insinuating that if you're sensitive enough, you might turn into a psychopath yourself after watching yeah, this film? That, that's yeah. That that was sort of the the. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because you can hear the undertones of moral panic in that. That's gonna yeah. you know right. causes causes some problems down the line in terms of what Hollywood can get away with doing in the next sort of ten or twenty years. That's really <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. Here's a nifty little bit, too. If you think Mr. Cagney looked brutal when he punched May Clark in the face with a ripe grapefruit in Public Enemy, you should see the sweet and loving things he does to handsome Virginia Mayo, who plays his low-grade wife in this film. Or you should scan the exquisite indifference with which he lets a little air into the trunk compartment of an auto in which is locked a treacherous friend. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great moment, though, isn't it? I mean, you know it's coming. It's signposted a mile off, and it doesn't stop it being like a real sort of, whoa... Yeah, yeah, really yeah. fun. 
really fun. I just wanted to, I, you know, I, I, I sense we're kind of coming to the end of what we want to say, which is fine. Uh, I, there was something else I just wanted to mention briefly, which is like, there are some really, really very neat bits of storytelling slash plotting in this that I just wanted to highlight. There's a lovely bit where, you know, the guy gets scolded by the steam right uh in the mm-hmm. initial getaway and then they so they leave him behind and there's this lovely moment where he just he leaves him a pack of cigarettes and it seems like there's just a genuinely kind of sweet gesture and then mm-hmm. you get this you get this moment later on where you get this sucker punch where you find out oh the guy just died and that's kind of and that happens off camera very kind of offhand delivery of that and it's quite upsetting because you've had this kind of connection with him by that point but then also the cigarette pack comes back to haunt you because there's fingerprints on the cellophane of the cigarette package which they right. lift to find. And like, that's just, that's just cool. I just love that. They took something that appeared to me in the moment of watching it when it gives them the cigarettes, just to be like a gesture of humanity, you know, from yeah. one person to another, but it pulls that double duty of helping identify the gang and, and move the police investigation forward. That's just good storytelling. You know, it's just good, yeah. solid. Well, I was expecting that to be the moment, like Cagney's going to find out that it happened and then he's going to confront the guy. And, you know, that's, mm. it, you know, I thought that was where the film was going and it doesn't go there at all. It just, it's just no. a moment that, you know, it's just left behind by the film. And that's the, yeah. that's the, that's the thing I was kind of wondering as I was watching this, like what were genre expectations from audiences back then? Because I mean, that's stuff we think about, but yeah. This, well, you get you got to think at this point, noir is so. I mean, noir is still sort of a a big genre. I mean, it's just yeah. you know every every week there's another like kind of B grade noir picture kind of happening, and mm. so I think I think the fact that it does you know kind of revolve through genres is part of its staying power, part of what made it you know interesting at the time, and certainly the the level of brutality. I mean, the level of uh, you know the way he's the way he just beats up on his wife is mm-hmm. really sh- I mean that would be shocking today. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it, it compares to what happened to uh, Christina Hendricks in Drive. You know, right. for instance, you know it's it's a it's a really brutal little moment. Not that I'm like saying, oh yeah, I think we should beat up more women in pictures, but I mean, you know, it's it's, <laughs> it's used it's used properly here. I think particularly Agreed. for the time period. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah just... Another another piece of plotting oh. I really appreciated. Sorry, just to just to no, uh, go. Um, I really love that he has a plan. Like yes. he's gonna, he's going to confess to this one crime as a yeah. way of getting out, beating the rap for the other crime. Yeah, which I think is a really fascinating little thing, which leads us into sort of the the middle third of the film into the, the yeah. whole sequence. But also, <laughs> you know, the, the cops kind of know what's going down. You know, they kind of figure out, oh, he's doing this. Like he's not really fooling them; he just thinks he's fooling them. Yeah, and so there is this sort of sense in which he's clever, but he thinks he's more clever than he is, which is pretty realistic for how these guys actually operate you know they 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 always think they're one step ahead of the cops when in reality they're usually like a step behind yeah yeah and again that feeds into the thing about like him being a rat in a trap from the get-go like he you're right he never actually really gets the drop on the police and arguably maybe the breakout is the only time that happens but even then he doesn't really get the drop on them he just does something they weren't expecting so they have to adjust but he's got an undercover copper with him the whole time like he's (laughs) never you know what i mean like he's never out from under and i agree i mean that was one of the other yeah that was one of the other plot points i was going to pick up on because i love that too and it's the kind of idea where you think geez why hasn't that been done more often that's brilliant it's such a great idea you know that he's set himself he's he's got in his back pocket this crime he can confess to that will get him out of the the homicide he's i mean he's literally going to get away with murder right Mm -hmm. by by copping to a lesser crime that's just 
That's such a great idea. That's really, yeah. really cool. And as you say, the kind of fun part of that being that, oh, but they're, they're, they know exactly what's going on the whole time. It's not He's not fooling anyone. Um, and, and the idea of this undercover cop who's, you know, like, I've been in prison for 12 of the last 20 years. Because yeah. That's much I really wish we got a little bit more of, like, that guy's psychology, you know. Just how, he's, how, he's a fun character, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He is a fun and, uh, you know, the, the wife, you know, like, you know, I like blondes. And then um, they find <laughs> the, the photo, you know, they take it out. And then at first you think he's he's caught because he doesn't recognize the photo. And then, yeah. like, oh, no, no, she was supposed to, she was blonde. She better be blonde when I get back out. Yeah, <laughs> what's she done to her hair? Jesus. Oh, so, no, that's fun. And the bit as well where he's in the lineup and he suddenly realizes, like, oh, my God, that's the guy I put away. Like, that's and he ends up having to pick a fight just to get thrown in solitary so he doesn't right. get... I mean that that's lovely that's really good fun I also like in the prison sequences I just wanted to talk about like I really loved the the idea that they've got a deaf guy who they use for an intel mm. because he can lip read again just that's a really elegant idea you yeah. know but it, it becomes really important in the story and I thought that was superb and the sequence with the uh, falling metal the mm-hmm. the attempted killing whew, that looked to me like a pretty impressive bit of stunt work actually the way oh, that yeah. was put together i was like geez that you know that was and again you think about safety health and safety in 1949 like someone was taking a non-trivial risk in that scene i think yeah i think Uh, so too there's there's a sense in which they're they're like the angle in which it's shot you know kind of accentuates some of that i mean it's it's definitely a uh yeah it's not quite as dangerous as it looks but it's still i mean it's it's an impressive stunt regardless yes um, and, and I mean, no, and I just yeah. And if and if they the, did if they did angle shoot it, then that's an impressive piece of filmmaking because it's convincing, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it's a really convincing moment. Yeah. Uh, back to the deaf guy, I really love yeah. the uh, sequence where he's using the mirror to uh, read the guy's lips uh, right. from, from across. The it's a really nifty piece of cinema, and I just love the fact that there's a guy in the film who has an iPod the whole time, which uh, yeah seems, <laughs> seems really anachronistic for 1949. I didn't realize they went back that far. Well, you can tell of, uh, you can tell it was an old one because it was so big. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one, the, that's one of those like you know 100 megabyte you know storage or something yeah, i already got like two albums on it it was rubbish yeah <laughs> you see kids were were contemporary <laughs> yeah, yeah like, all it had was like glenn miller's in the mood and i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's um, the only song i know from that period i fuck myself up there damn it the only the only other thing i uh i do want to mention is i do like that it doesn't go for as much as this is usually a pretty good convention of these films. I, I like that it doesn't go for the cop gets Stockholm syndrome and starts to uh, sympathize with the with the gangster. Like he he's always on the job in this film, and he and his whole goal is to catch this guy or just get the fuck away from him because he's so goddamn crazy. <laughs> yeah, I I think if there's one kind of I mean just the political criticism is that and we kind of come back to this is just built into the genre. Um, it's way too kind to the police, yeah. you know, in, in terms of like, like, you know, oh, the cops are always heroes. They're always the, uh, they're always one step ahead of the bad guys. And, uh, despite the fact, I mean, we've literally got this guy who kills four people just for, for no reason. Like, oh, you're good at remembering names, huh? Dead. You know, like mm-hmm. that's the, that's the whole, that's the whole like reason he kills two of those guys is, you know, oh, my name, you spoke my name. So I have to, you know, kill you. You know, we're, we're essentially given this literally comically bad guy who we're mm. just rooting against the whole time and so it really doesn't matter you know we, we sort of buy that the cops are going to do whatever they need to do to get him despite yeah. the fact that like as i as i kind of mentioned you know they put a ton of resources into tracking this yeah. guy, you know <laughs> um 
They've got this guy who's got to be in his cellmate for months just to just to try to get information out of him, which yeah. is uh, the sort of fascinating thing. And it would, you know, a more modern telling, I think we would expect to have a little bit more of a uh, get a little bit more of the kind of psychological depth with these guys. In terms well, of, Daniel, you know, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but back in the 40s, they had a lot more time and resources to put towards one or two criminals at a time. Because as you can see in the film, there was no black people, so there was no extra crime. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And uh, this is before you know we had all the uh, oh. all the all the Muslims and and other you know Mexican people and brown people like coming exactly. over and committing all these terrible crimes. So you know, yeah. I mean, um, drugs didn't even exist at this point. No, I mean, the, the, the no. worst that crime was is like they're stealing treasury bills from. <laughs> 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 stealing treasury bills from a uh, train, and that's the you know that that's the that's as bad as crime got in 1949. Oh man, so, how um, diabolical yeah. can you possibly get? I mean, man, this guy's going to do a couple of years for for you know this terrible crime. You know, I mean, it, it could, you know, they really should go after the real criminals, the the people who like have an ounce of cocaine on them. Yeah, like, those are the people who have yeah. who are the real criminals. That they're the ones who yeah. get you know 20 years. So. Absolutely. Mandatory minimums. It's the only way. I mean, clearly. Um, uh, yeah. So um, any any final thoughts on this one or uh, should we move I, on? I have one final thought about Cagney himself. As I watch him in this, especially seeing him at the end in the Gasworks, but all the way through, I find myself wishing somehow that you could take the 1989 Tim Burton Batman script send it back in time to 1949 and have Cagney play the Joker. Oh. So I think that would have just been the most amazing, like he would have knocked that out of the park, you know? So that's just my, yeah, that's just my observation. I just, I wish we could have had a, a Cagney Joker. I think that would have been the most amazing thing. Yeah. You know what? Uh, thinking about how, how much Pesci really draws from the Cagney kind of persona, yeah. Jack Nicholson kind of, as well to a certain degree i think kind of yeah kind of takes because sure. jack nicholson's kind of a plays sawed off psychopaths for, for a lot of his career as well so <laughs> he's done some yeah. of that sure absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah i'm on the top of the world ma you can't handle the truth <laughs> another 1992 reference for the uh for the kids. see i was i was trying to formulate forget about it kid it's uh a gas works but that doesn't really work Forget about it, kids. It's ch- it's sing sing. <laughs> it's sing sing. There you go. There you oh, go. Man. <laughs>
we can now move on to Night in the City from 1950. The next 120 seconds bring you more action and excitement than most people experience in a lifetime. Rushing at fever pitch out of the night in the city comes the best-selling novel that intrigued millions, Gerald Kirsch's startling story of London after dark, Night and the City. An intimate and intense picture of a city and the intruders in the night who live and love and hate under cover of its darkness. Richard Widmark. Always fleeing from one affair, always turning to another, working harder than any man that ever lived, but always on the wrong thing. Gene Tierney, who wants only his love. Who are you running away from now? Running? Me? Now, you know me better than that. Three days and three nights and not a word for me. Well, I've been very busy. For all I knew, you were lying in the gutter somewhere with a knife in your back. Gucci Withers, who wants his kisses. Just think, Harry, think. We're younger, stronger, healthier than he is. We've got more life in our little fingers than he has in the whole of his body. Oh, Harry, darling, we must have got to get away from him. Please, Harry, please. Hugh Marlowe, who wants his sweetheart. Oh, no, you don't. Not again. Every time you talk, you mix me up so I can't think straight for a week. Thanks, Harry. Anything. Anytime. Francis L. Sullivan, who wants his life. You've got it all. You're a dead man, Harry Samuel. A dead man. Give it up, give it up! Stop! Stop it! Stop it! Hey, man, come out of there! You rat! You double-tosser, you Judas! Harry! Harry, go back! Turn me in! Cut my throat for a thousand quid! Go back, Harry, I'll get help! Directed by Jules Dassan, who's probably best known for Rififi, another classic of the genre. This is written by Joe Isinger, Gerald Kirsch, and Austin Dempster, and William E. Watts. Uh, Gerald Kirsch did the novel for this that it's based on. And this is starring Richard Widmark as Harry Fabian, Gene Turney as Mary Bristol, Googie Withers as Helen Nose Ross, Hugh Marlowe as Adam Dunn, Francis L. Sullivan as Philip Nose Ross. Herbert Lom as Christo, Stanislaus Sabisco as Gregorius, Mike Mazurki as The Strangler, Charles Farrell as Mickey Beer, Ada Reeve as Molly the Flower Lady, and Ken Richmond as Nicholas of Athens. And uh, I'll let you get to the synopsis there, Daniel. Uh, this one I am actually stealing from David Sterrett, writing over at TCM. It's a, a really nice little review, and there's a little section here that makes a nice synopsis, so I'm just stealing it. Richard Woodmark plays Harry Fabian, an American hustler living in London, where he regularly hits up his girlfriend, Mary Bristol, for cash to pay off loan sharks and invest in un unpromising schemes. He also practices minor league scams on behalf of a nightclub called the Silver Fox, where Mary is a singer employed by the joint's owners, Phil Nosseros, and his wife, Helen. A chance encounter links Harry up with an aging Greek man named Gregorius, who was once a champion wrestler in the classic Greco-Roman mode. Gregorius' son, Christo, is a leading promoter of the new style professional wrestling, which his father hates because it's all showbiz and fakery. 
Talking with Gregorius gives Harry his latest get-rich-quick idea. With the old Greek as his partner, he'll fill a gap in the support in the sporting scene by producing Greco-Roman wrestling matches in London. Needing funds to get the Enterprise going, Harry approaches Phil, who laughs him out of the room. Others also refuse, either because they don't take Harry seriously or because they're afraid of competing with Christo, who's ruthless and deadly. In a sudden surprise, Helen tricks Phil into promising half the money Harry needs if Harry can put up a matching amount, and she herself slips Harry the rest. In return for this favor, she wants Harry to wrangle her a license that will let her leave Phil and open a pub. Harry agrees, even though he knows he can't deliver, and then leaps enthusiastically into his new professional wrestling promoter. But the odds are totally against him. Krista will kill him if he hurts his old Greek father. Phil suspects that Harry is having an affair with Helen, he is of course, and secretly plots to destroy him. To accomplish this, Phil hoodwings Harry into arranging a match between Gurrius' protege, a Greco-Roman wrestler named Nicholas of Athens, and the Strangler, a well-known attraction of the new-style wrestling circuit. Catastrophe follows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, and uh, we'll throw it right over to you, Kit, again, for your sort of initial thoughts on this one. <clears throat> sure. So this one was, uh, yeah, I watched it just within the last sort of two or three weeks for this cast. I'd never seen it before. Uh, Daniel recommended it as the pairing with white heat and I, i'm really glad he did because um I, I don't think i'd have heard of this movie otherwise and it was a real joy again i think as i mentioned earlier i think that the thematic quality that is shared by both movies is that the well there's two actually one is that the protagonist in both movies is kind of an anti-hero i mean cagney more so than harry fabian harry fabian as a, as a character is more kind of flawed than sight i mean he's not psychopathic but he is he has a he has a bundle of flaws that make him you know he wouldn't be a terribly pleasant person to know and he would be a very difficult person if you happen to care about him to have in your life you know because he has a right. incredibly self-destructive streak familiar there's that similarity but the other similarity is again he's a rat in a trap from the very beginning i think he's literally running from the very beginning if i remember rightly like he's just he you know he's he's constantly in motion to try and escape this avalanche of crap that's coming towards him you know he's constantly trying to again exactly as Cagney he's trying to outrun his own fate you know but but it's strapped to his ankle he's dragging it with him he's, there is no escape um from from the life he's built for himself for the consequences of his actions um and yeah he's he's kind of from the from the very beginning he's uh you know he's in that kind of a situation he's being yeah he's being pursued he's he's he, he's bouncing from get rich quick scheme to get rich quick scheme there's a desperation to it which i really enjoyed i love the supporting cast i don't i don't really think there's a bad performance in this one uh the the no. actors are, the actors are so good and it's it's quite a sizable ensemble cast considering the overall scale of the film but they're they're lovely i mean he's is it his wife or his girlfriend i couldn't i couldn't quite girlfriend. place that girlfriend i mean that's a that's a beautiful beautiful performance again it's a it's a kind of cliche character the girl with a heart of gold who's hooked up with the charming loser i mean that's a cliche mm -hmm. that exists in I'm, I'm sure we all we can all probably think of people for whom that's something that happens in real life right it's not yeah. it's a cliche but it's also a lived reality for a lot of women i thought it was a, a really beautiful nuanced performance i particularly enjoyed the subtle fact of her relationship with her neighbor with that guy who clearly absolutely adores her and who she keeps leaning on for help. But it's this unrequited kind of... And I love that nothing happens with that too. I love the fact that doesn't come back to bite anybody in the life. It's just an aspect of her life. It's just a facet of that existence. There was right. something very poignant about that that I really enjoyed. 
uh, and I enjoyed partly because it wasn't overplayed. I didn't think. I love the. Uh, I loved his boss. Uh, was it? I can't remember the guy's name now. Either the uh, Philip. Yeah. Philip. I, Nos- yeah. Yeah. Nosaras. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Oh, what a wonderful like. I mean, I actually found myself thinking of Hitchcock quite a lot just because of the <laughs> the size of him, you know, and that kind yeah. of. But what a what a lovely performance that was. How how delightfully sleazy and and kind of, you know, uh, I loved how. I loved how he was kind of uh, almost camp, but still intimidating at the same time. Um, I thought that was really, really great. And his, you know, his relationship with his wife. I mean, again, she was, that's a kind of cliche character, but it was a, it was a lovely, lovely performance. Just the story. I mean, I think the old man wrestler, I mean, again, he was, he was out, that was an outstanding performance. The the guy playing the wrestler, I thought he did an exceptional job, but it was, there was something really lovely there about the collision of old school and new school, you know, the, the collision of modernity with, with an ancient and noble tradition. And we all know how that's going to play out. I mean, like there's no question Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's that kind of a story, you know, but it was still very, very well played. I and I liked his son as well. I liked that dead-eyed gangster. He was very, you know, the way he was intimidating, not by being explosive, but by being deadly icy calm the whole time. Right. That was really effective, I thought. And it's it's brilliantly made. The the score is is really good. Um, there's some lovely camera work. There was a, a a camera angle as he was charging up the stairs to to break into his girlfriend's house and steal her money. Uh, it was you know just little touches like that throughout, and some some camera work from within the cars, if I remember rightly, was was impressively done as well. Um, so yeah, I just yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I'm glad I'm glad Daniel for the recommendation. So thank you for that because I wouldn't have seen it otherwise. But yeah, real pleasure. Yeah, uh, Daniel, over to you. I uh, saw this last year, again, as part of the sort of uh, watching a bunch of noir films while we were watching noir films. <clears throat> I mentioned it, uh, I think, right. I, it, it's just sort of in a, what we've been watching segment um, like a year ago. I knew we had to cover it at some point because I thought you, Lee, would really enjoy it. And mm-hmm. um, when uh, Kit's like, oh, yeah, let's do White Heat and then something else, I went, Night in the City, that's what we need to do. That's going to be great. Like, just do two noir films from, you know, just a couple of years apart or a year to apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this. I love Woodmark in this. Mm-hmm. Last year, I saw him in No Way Out and in uh, Kiss of Death, and this, and I think this is actually the best of the three performances. Um, yeah, he he's phenomenal here. I love how much of a loser he is. He's this very kind of classic noir figure because yeah. you know we're kind of used to seeing you know our protagonist of films being there, even if they're you know just kind of piece of shit, you know, at least to kind of be dynamic and powerful. And this guy, I mean, he's just a slug. And the film <laughs> makes no bones about the fact that he's a slug, um, yep. that he's he's ripping off everybody in his life for I mean, for pitiful sums of money, you know yep. that that he's not he's not a guy without talent, he's not a guy without some positive qualities. I mean, he's that clever scheme that he has in order to get the um, what's his name the, uh, the the wrestlers to fight the the strangler to fight. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. To fight Gregorius, I think is a really really clever like central piece of like it shows like what this guy's actually capable of. But for the most part, he's just he's just trying to like grift like a little bit of money on these like tiny little schemes that aren't going to go anywhere. I mean, he's literally like trying to sell toothpaste at the beginning. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> he's this complete. Um, I mean, he's just this complete low life, and um, I love that about this. I love that the film makes no bones about that. I love that we get to just kind of follow him around, you know, with like long suffering girlfriend, and then he's got the mistress who's really just using him. I mean, everybody's using this guy. I mean, you know, yeah, you say yeah. you say you know, rat on it. He's more like he's more like a fish on. On a on a on a um, on a hook, you know, yeah. like this guy. This guy, there is never any chance that this guy is actually going to get away because he's just 
the victim of much more powerful forces, and he thinks he has some degree of agency, but he's just completely fucked the entire time. And I just I love that element of it. He's just yeah. he he's doomed from the beginning, and he doesn't realize it. And he to the degree that he realizes that he's that he's kind of out of his depths. He thinks he's managing to to find to make that one big score, but at the same time he's just he's just completely fucked. Yeah, I just I love that element of it. I love following him around, and um, mm. it ends on such the slick depressing note. <laughs> like oh, everybody God. is fucked at the end. Um, yeah. it's, it's great. Um, I, I love yeah. I really really love this film. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. I'm glad I finally got around to watching it. Harry basically creates his own trap, doesn't he? I mean, he just every move he makes just closes the walls in on him more, and he doesn't notice it until it's too late. It's almost like London itself, and then this is set in London. It's it's got it's got that bombed out landscape. You sort of uh, alternate between these sort of labyrinth kind of streets and these tight little nooks and crannies, and then. It opens up into this bombed-out wasteland, almost, and he just can't get away from it. During the end of the film, when he's actually physically being chased, he has to escape the city, and the only thing he knows is the city. He knows every turn in the street in that in that city, but as soon as he moves out into the open is when he gets caught and killed. So yeah. he, there, there's absolutely no escape and, and no, no comfort anywhere, even in the place he knows best. I really, really enjoyed the uh, wrestling angle on this. It's very true to how wrestling was back then. Stanislaw Sabisco was an actual uh, professional wrestler and okay. he did he, he did come out of that era where it made, was making the transition from being legit to being more fixed and predetermined. He he was one of these uh, wrestlers who was still around when it really became big in the U.S. and was kind of used as uh, as a guy to keep non wrestlers from <laughs> from coming into the business and and uh, screwing over people because he could you know he could actually take you down in the ring and and hurt you for real instead of a a staged match right i really enjoyed the the uh the wrestling match in it it looked really good yeah it's an amazing looking film uh amazing performances in here i'll let you guys go uh but i i i want to think more on what i wanted to say there i sort of lost my train of thought (laughs) that's okay i just to just talk about the look of the film i love the the foggy city um, yeah. And I particularly love there's a there's a shot towards the end where um, Woodmark is standing in front of a brick wall. It's right. It's when the uh, the kind of guys are closing in on him and the cops show up. Oh there's yeah. A, there's a there's a there's a moment where like sort of the car comes and you see the headlights come through and you get that like classic shadows on the wall kind of noir mm. look. Um, which the film we spend so much time in either interiors or we spend time in you know the kind of smoky clubs and and bars where it doesn't get that like really crisp German expressionist uh, look, but um, it's it's pretty clear that um, it can still do that in shots like that or in shots like where uh, you mentioned earlier the uh, the tracking shot down the stairs. Um, there there are some very classic noirish looking stuff in this, despite the fact that it doesn't. Um, it doesn't really push quite as heavily in that direction as some other films of the genre. It's a, uh, it's a little bit later in the genre for that. But um, I also love the way that he, he does just manage to just kind of bamboozle the cops just long enough to get away in that moment. Yeah. Um, it's such a, I mean, it, and it does again get to kind of show what this guy's good at is just sort of, you know, sounding authoritative enough. Oh no, my my foreman will take care of that. I can, you know, no, 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 we've got we've got permits, we've got permits. Look over here, and then like, oh look, these guys are after me. And this complete, mm. I mean, it's such a simple moment. I mean, it's not like a complicated plan, but he sells that moment completely where, like, I completely understand why the cops are like, oh, yeah, sure, no, okay, we got to go after these guys now. 
and then he but just runs yeah. away. <laughs> but that's the brilliance of his character, isn't it? Is how finely it's balanced between competence and incompetence. Because if he was completely incompetent, he wouldn't be able to get in as much trouble as he gets in. Right. That's what's so <laughs> utterly brilliant about him. It's like he's just dangerous enough. He's just skillful enough to dig a hole he cannot possibly escape from. And that's what I, lo- I love that. There's something endlessly tragic about that. And it's, that is an archetype. I mean, that is something that it's an archetype in the wild. And it, and it runs even through. I was thinking as I was talking about that and, and hearing you guys talk about it, it reminded me there's a character like that in season two of The Wire who's one of the guys who works on the docks. And you know pretty much from the moment you meet him, like, this is going to end badly for you, kid. Because he was just bright enough to to know that he wanted more and he had just enough but you knew he didn't have enough to follow through and enough to really stick the landing on what he was trying to do you know what i mean like you just well, you can see he thinks his cleverness will save him yeah but exactly the reality is that it doesn't matter how clever he is if phil just isn't going to fucking pay him <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah phil absolutely. just has phil has phil holds all the cards so it's like no i'm not paying you yeah. like no fuck but also like it's he's smart enough to get himself in the like he sees the opportunity with the wrestling and like you say the scheme to get the fight to happen i mean the way he does that is brilliant it's stone brilliant but like he's not thinking about the next level you know what I mean? Like he's not. Well, he's like that. he he gets this whole plan based yeah. on the idea that like well Phil told me that he would he would put up the money for the fight if I yeah. if I could yeah. set it up, and then he goes to Phil and he's I mean it's this brilliant little performance scene where he's like playing around on the drums. I mean yes. he's really excited. He's like yeah we're gonna do this. This is gonna be great. He's like a little kid at Christmas, and then yeah. Phil's like you're gonna die. I've yeah. set it up. You are going to die. I have That's killed you. And it's thing. such a great performance piece from both of them, honestly. Yep. But um, yep. you you just you see it in Winmark's face. I mean, he's such a uh, he he's versatile in those moments yes. where you you get both the the sort of childlike glee and this impending sense of doom. And um, yeah. you know, he thought. I mean, he he's on top of the world here, right? Yeah. He's got it all in the palm of his hand, and then like for lack of two hundred quid, he's dead. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And then, of course, what, what you what you end up with is when he does kind of come back and he does have the money, um, he's dead anyway because in his absence, the entire plan fell apart because it was never going to last yeah. more than ten minutes anyway. You know, sure. Once anybody <laughs> I mean, started talking to anybody else, it was going to fall apart. But yeah. we're kind of taught by movie logic that like once it's set up, then oh, we've we've got our victory for our hero here, our sort of anti-hero. We've got like it's. In movies, like once it's like, oh, the fight's on, and then we just kind of move on to the fight, right? Like we just we yeah. don't we're not we're we're taught as movie audiences that this is now that that part of the movie is over and we're moving on to the next thing, but that isn't the way it works in real life. And I love there's a, there's a real intricacy to the uh, to the plotting here. It's, it's it's confounding our expectations in that moment. You know, building on that to a degree, I think the other thing I really enjoyed was the sheer volume of moving parts. Like I, I had, I made a note from about half an hour in, just after the reveal that Helen has been having an affair with Harry and used to be Harry's girl full time, you know, and that whole scene in and that lovely line in that pub, by the way, where he's at, Harry's at the bar trying to persuade someone to give him money. He's like, "We sell drinks here, Harry." I love that. Such yeah, great. <laughs> such a great line. But that whole yeah, there's that point there where you've got you know the boss, you know Harry's boss is deceiving him. He's got the history with Helen, and they're trying to set up the thing. And it's just like. I love that moment where you've got all of these balls in motion. You know what I mean? You've got all these elements up in the air and all you know for sure is that it's going to come crashing down horrifically in a mess, but you don't know how, 
it's going to play out at that point. And I really like the audacity of that in terms of the storytelling to just say, here's, we're just going to throw all of this stuff at you audience. We're just going to throw all these plot strands, all these threads. And for me, part of the joy of watching the film was, was watching how those played out was seeing how that, and I didn't predict a lot of it. I didn't predict. I mean, like I said, I know I've mentioned it. We've, we've both mentioned it a few times now, but the plan, the plan to get the wrestlers to fight, that's G like, I didn't see that coming at all. It's brilliant. The way it played out, you know, and then of course the way it came, completely collapsed you know it was yeah. also and as you say uh lee that wrestling match holy god that was something wasn't it i mean those guys must have both been professionals right that well must yeah have been. Uh, stanislaus abisco was an old old school yeah. professional wrestler like he's basically just playing himself here right. um and uh the guy who played the strangler mike mazurki was a pro wrestler for a short time but then he went on basically to have a long career in hollywood as you know the oh, sort okay. of the, the heavy or whatever right yeah yeah but yeah uh going back to the wrestling there just for a minute i do really like that it's appropriately set in london as opposed to the usa if this was set in the usa it wouldn't ring true because uh, there were really wasn't mob involvement in pro wrestling in the U.S. like there was in London, and uh, especially in Japan as well. He, there's just really no money in gambling on professional wrestling when it's a fixed right. Uh, sport, right? <laughs> but at that time, it was still a transition period, uh, so there was still real matches here and there. Mm. There, there were still uh, legit bouts, so you could gamble on it. It, it, it became much more of a, a fixed sport much sooner in the U.S. than it did in other countries. So uh, it is it is appropriate that they uh, set it in London, and it, it does feel authentic that there would be mob involvement in, in a, in a London-based one. I mean, this movie was remade in 1992 and set in New York. And they had to switch it to boxing at that point for for the sport to that that was the centerpiece of it all. Yeah, that makes sense. Kit, you you mentioned and and I agree that I, I like the complexity of this. I like the the number of moving parts, how the the plots are all kind of intersecting. That's always a fun um, thing with these kind of crime films when uh, you know everybody's kind of at each other's throats and they've all got schemes and um, you know it's it's one of those things that you just kind of get in the same kind of crime fiction. If there's one criticism, I think that the two women in the film look a little bit too much alike. That's um, true. you know, um, not that, not that I want to, uh, talk about either one of them as being bad. I mean, Gene Tierney and Googie uh, Withers are both really good in the film, but yeah. they look enough alike that it's, that, you know, certainly on kind of a first watch through, it's not always clear, you know, <laughs> that, you know, which, who you're supposed to be like kind of looking at at any particular time. You know, it's kind of obvious when you kind of think about it, but um, it would be nice if there was a little bit more of a visual differentiation between these two characters because they do look similar enough that it is, that um, I just, I, it's easy to kind of lose track of the plot just because of that. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking to to uh, Harry Fabian's uh, sort of character in the film, like how he's his sort of reputation. It's interesting that he he goes basically to like the big kind of underworld figures that he knows. Well, not big underworld figures. He goes to the lower level ones looking for money yep. while, while he's trying to raise that 200 pounds. And none of them want to touch this guy. Like they, they're just like, no, yeah. just, just stay away. Just stay away from me because <laughs> they all know he's trouble. They all know he's going to get himself killed at some point and they don't want to be part of any scheme he's in because they'll get killed as well. Well, I think as well, just more fundamentally, he's a bad investment, right? I mean, they, they all, mm -hmm. they've all, I, my impression of that was they've all either been burned by him in the past or they've heard stories of other people who've been burned enough. You know, right. like it's just that thing where he's just got the reputation. And that, again, I love that because that feeds into the desperation and the fatality that's underlines the whole story of like, yeah, but this 
this time I really have got the scheme. And of course, the irony is he does this one time. <laughs> he's actually got it, but it's too damn late. You know, like he's he's tra- he's been a hustling for so long and he's, he's come up short so many times that it just it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, like the, the label loser ends up becoming his reality, even when he's actually finally onto it, maybe finally onto a winner, you know, and I love yeah. that. I love the tragic element of that. Yeah, I love how he, he holds Christo's father, Gregorius, over his head, basically, as his, as his mm. safety measure. But it's Gregorius's own pride as, as a real professional wrestler that yeah. kind of screws up that whole plan. Because, it, you know, it's, it's just the factor that uh, Harry didn't count on, that Gregorius was going to throw himself into a match against the Strangler <laughs> instead, of yeah. put, instead of put Nicholas of Athens against him. Yeah. So, and... I really enjoyed that. Uh, it was a really good little plot twist. It's like you just can't win, Harry. There's a, something's gonna something's gonna go wrong. So it was what I loved about that twist as well was it was surprising, but it was also plausible. Like yeah. it, it made perfectly as soon as it happened, you're like, oh yeah, of course, because it's just his character, Gregorius's character. He had so he was so I loved him by the way. As I mean, mm-hmm. as a character, I loved him because in this in this world of shady deals, and he was just this pillar of honesty and integrity. You know, he was just this very. Uh, you know, very kind of stalwart, stoic kind of man of honor, surrounded by kind of like compromised people and uh, and shady dealings. His ending is is I mean, in this, it's interesting because it is a tragedy. Like nobody, that's nobody gets a happy ending in this story. <laughs> Absolutely, everybody gets completely hosed. The only person who gets a happy ending is the old woman who ended up inheriting the right. the the bit like she's literally the only person left smiling <laughs> at the end of this like it's a shit show for everyone else but it's particularly I think I think yeah the that guy's ending is particularly tragic because he's such an honorable figure and it is almost like part of that that part of the story almost seems to be saying like it's no longer a time for honorable men you know like you can't if you are like gregorius then the history is just going to roll you over because that's how it works like and it that was really poignant i thought uh and it was was very well played by everyone involved that helped but it really there's a poignancy just on a story level to that i thought well gregorius's downfall is ultimately trusting this guy who's fundamentally untrustworthy yeah absolutely yeah his own honor Honorable. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in, in a way, Gregorius is the ultimate, is the man who suffers the most for uh, Widmark's cons. Yeah. Because yeah. He, he is an honest man, you know, whereas the rest of them are, are just, you know, grifters like Widmark or they're mm-hmm. gangsters or whatever. But this guy, the actual honest guy who does believe in him, who doesn't, when, even when he doesn't deserve it, but he is, he's hoodwinked. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't mm-hmm. realize what a shitty guy this this guy is so um oh, yeah. i I, yeah. I love i love uh woodmark's character just to um woodmark's character is the kind of two-bit asshole that you would see at the beginning of another movie you know he he's <laughs> the guy who he's the guy who like turns in who um you know who turns state evidence against uh another uh, the the real big guy in another right. movie, you know what i mean or he's the guy who's uh who's like, killed at the in, in an opening skirmish and the idea that we're just going to kind of follow this guy around for an entire film. I mean, it's very like this era of noir just sort of does that, you know? Yeah. And I, and I love that element of it. I love the fact that um, we are kind of taking some of these characters who are like lower level characters who would be just kind of the small fry in other movies yeah. uh, and, and uh, kind of getting their perspective a little bit more. 
yeah, it's funny you say that. It's just building on the back of that. Cause the film I kept thinking of in that context was The Sting and how The Sting represents, like, hyper-competent con artists, right? I mean, those guys right. are, like, the best of the best. And, yeah, and Harry Fabian, is he's like the guy who they hit in the first ten minutes of The Sting. He's like <laughs> the guy who whose only purpose in, in the movie is to show you how cool the protagonists are by how they hoodwink him. Like, like that is who he is. Yeah, absolutely. And, to, yeah, there is a genius to, to deciding no let's let's follow that guy around let's see what well, that guy's life is like you know? we're so used to these films just being like you know he was the best of the best right you know right. both both versions of the driver that we are driver and drive that we uh that we did a couple weeks ago you know it's mm. you know they're the you know the best driver on the planet and it's like no let's follow around the loser let's follow around yeah. the second rate guy you know <laughs> which i guess bring me the head of alfredo garcia and now both of these films kind of kind of have that yeah that them, you know yeah um Whitehead, I mean, you know, we kind of get the, the Cagney is uh, very good at what he does, but I mean, he's still getting caught, you know, the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Um, but no, I particularly love that element of Night in the City where we are, you know, there is a genre awareness, I think, to both of these films that I think yep. makes them feel remarkably modern, even though they're obviously, you know, 70 years old at this point, or close to 70 years old. I think the pacing in both movies is a big part of that as well. I think they're, they're paced in a very modern way. They don't feel slow, either of them. No. And the nearest you get is that, as I said, they're kind of anachronistic. Here's how, here's how, uh, here's how tracer cars work in the fifty, in the forties. <laughs> yeah, that's the only, but that's really the only moment in either movie where you feel like it's dragging. Otherwise, like the plot is moving. Every scene is driving the story forward. Is introducing a new element or complicating things or adding a twist. There isn't a wasted moment in in either film, you know. It's and that's really impressive. It's really impressive storytelling. Well, even even the tracer car stuff isn't like wasted time, just because even I mean, even from well, modern standards, we'd now kind of think of it the other way, to where we get so how are they following these guys? Like if it wasn't spelled mm. out, you know, mm. right. yeah. um, if you just kind of saw it in the background. I mean, I you know the the sort of police procedural stuff. I'm never going to complain too much as long as it doesn't like overwhelm the film, just because yeah. it's always just sort of this entertaining, you know. This is how they actually do it, sort of, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hint to that. It's uh just moving back to Night in the City. It's interesting how the the cops aren't really involved in any of this. No. Like this is completely a story of the underworld, and and nobody's really nobody seems to even like think about the cops. You know. I mean, the closest we get is like the the cop who uh, discovers the. forged uh business license the forged, right. the forged pub license you know? oh what a great moment that was as well yeah oh so good yeah, yeah. there's there's no regulation against ginger ale uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh i see i see yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I'll, um, I'll have a little i'll have a little taste of your ginger ale here thank you <laughs> yeah i, I kind of wonder what the what the criminal underworld was like in post-war <laughs> london anyway i mean uh, is it is it really is this like an accurate de- depiction of like was it so penny ante and small fry at this point because every everything was like literally bombed into yeah. oblivion I mean, I don't know. I think that I mean the the, the it was it was certainly it was certainly uh, active and it was certainly big because you had obviously rationing would still have been in effect. Right. And wherever you have rationing, you have a thriving black market. I mean, that's just because that's just how people work. So there certainly will have been the scale of it. I think is right. It will have been huge. There will have been a lot of people hustling for sure. I think it probably will have been small scale. Yeah, it will all have been low because that's you know where you're at the point where. You know, you can, I mean, yeah, at the point where you can get illicit money for chocolate mm-hmm. because it's enough of a rarity that people are prepared to pay through the nose for it. 
then yeah, yeah. it's probably is going to be quite it's going to be quite yeah it's going to be both booming and pretty low rent for the most part because no one's yeah. got any money either i mean yeah that's well, the thing it felt like the money was right here it, because like yeah. the the hit put out on him's for a thousand pounds and to to widmark that's his girlfriend's ticket out of yes. poverty like wow that <laughs> yeah well, you've yeah, also got the insane uh, amount of money yeah absolutely I just looked at the, uh, at the at the novel on Wikipedia, and it was originally published in 1938. So wow. it was originally a pre-war thing, but it's um, it was, you know it's a crime thriller, but apparently it's also about sort of the the aftermath of the Great Depression. So um, right. the irony being that you could change it to you know 12 years later, you can make a movie based on it and fill some <laughs> of the same void, just because like it's no longer about the depression; it's about uh, the fact that we were just bombed for six years. You know, mm. so. it's almost like there's a 12-year economic cycle that causes I, depressions or something. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't. I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about that. Uh, <laughs> we're really walking into fiction at this point, guys. <laughs> 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 but that's a whole other five-hour podcast that we don't have time yes. for right now. We don't, we don't have to talk about it right now. No. Uh, <laughs> ever again. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, <sighs> you guys have any sort of final thoughts you want to throw on here? Uh, feel free. I wondered, I, I, Daniel, would you mind talking briefly to about the Silver Fox and the whole setup there? Because uh, something occurred to me, like, watch it, like, this must have been pretty scandalous when this came out. The You know, because it's, I mean, it's, it's not quite a brothel, but it's it's coming as close to being a brothel as you could have been on camera. And I kind of feeling like I mean, again, we're pre-code, aren't we? Um, but no, I was no, really... this is this is this is uh, post the Hayes Code. Oh, is this post Hayes, Hayes Code? code really? Is like the yeah, no, this oh, is. Oh wow, okay. So how did they how did they get away with this, man? Because it's quite racy, I think. You know, it's it's. I mean, it's it's. It didn't strike me as particularly racy for a film of that kind of, of that okay. time. Because they're not, I mean, they're not like showing nudity and they're, you know, you could have like people, I mean, basically as long as they're bad people, you can do whatever you want to them. You know, that's yeah. sort of, that's sort of the way that the, that the code worked at this, at this okay, time. Okay, okay. We're actually, I mean, the thing is like the Hayes code was sort of early on, it was kind of harshly enforced. And then as thing, you know, as, as kind of the decades passed, it became more oh, this right. sort of theoretical thing that we're supposed to be doing. It strikes me as fairly standard for war of this kind of the, of this time to that, that, you know, you could kind of set things in this, in these kind of clubs oh. and um, you kind of have these elements to it. And uh, as long as you're not glamorizing it, as long as, you know, you are kind of treating it as, you know, something evil and wrong. I mean, and I think that's part of, again, the, um, in, in white heat, you know, part of what's going on, the reason that you can kind of portray this guy the way you can is because, well, he's going to get caught in the end or, you know, the cops are after him. Like, as long as you portray the the police as as competent, good guys, yeah. you know, um, you can kind of do whatever you want. And I think Night in the City, Night in the City might also um, benefit from being a British production. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a little bit out of the eye of, of uh, sort of the Hollywood system in, in a way. So you, you, they probably got away with a little bit more, but it didn't strike me as being, um, you know, kind of way out there in terms of the kinds of material that it was able to do. Just because it's not, it's not glamorizing. You know, you're, you're the good people. There are no good people in this film. It's no, no, no. right? But we're we're not like we're not presented with um, these figures as as heroes. You know. Yeah, I, I guess I was also just kind of impressed at, at the kind of, and I guess what you said explains why that is, but just the kind of. As a as a depiction of um, of sex workers of some kind, whatever you know, whether it's prostitution or dancing, but it's still you know it's that kind of industry. It felt like a, a more honest portrayal of that than I've seen in 
like the vast majority of modern Hollywood depictions of that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like you think sure. about like fucking Pretty Woman or or Showgirls or whatever, and it's just like this feels much more close to like I bet it was something like that. You know what I mean? Well, there's a, there's a gritty social realism here, and I think that that's yeah. that's part of the key to the entire film. Yeah. Is that it? Is that it feels like it's sort of set in real places, and it's yeah. not it's not sort of the glitzy version. This is well, something look, I mean you see all the time in these sort of dancing girls movies where you know oh look at how gorgeous she is and you know the the pretty dress and you never see like the seams in the fabric basically you know right. you, you don't see them as like these kind of lower end people just doing a job and uh, I think that's what I think that's what you're kind of putting your finger on is that it works here because it does feel a little bit more lived in and realistic and and it doesn't it doesn't feel as is glossy but noir is also sort of because it was considered to be more of an adult genre i think noir was kind of allowed to get away with a little bit more like you wouldn't oh, okay. see this sort of thing in you know like a western like a color right. technicolor western around this time you know though there the dancing girls had to be a lot more you know uh, kind of glitzy and covered up sure yeah, I think both these films is interesting comparison and contrast really. They they do one film each does one end of the scale of noir and they do it really well. With White Heat, you've got the more over the top bombastic uh thrilling mm-hmm. kind of version with the big ending that literally ends in a massive fireball. <laughs> yeah. And th- and here in Night in the City, you have this sordid, dirty, downtrodden ending where Richard Widmark's character, he doesn't have that big bombastic death. He just <clears throat> he's just killed quickly with a stranglehold and dumped into the river like a piece of trash. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that what I I think the the other for me the impressive thing about Night in the City is how it manages to take like I mean in structurally it's almost a classic Greek tragedy in the in you know like it's almost a classical tragedy in the structure including the no happy endings everybody dies or ends up in the <laughs> shit I mean that is you know that's how that Greek tragedy works and to to transplant that into that CD kind of setting with these very sort of second or third rate low tier gangster types and hustlers it's just really inspired you know just such inspired storytelling and it and it plays out so well right Right. Yeah, um, I agree. I love this. It was great. Uh, <laughs> I think both of these movies are going to go on my uh, best of list for this year. Yeah. Cool. Now the the uh, just just to compare the films one more time. One of the interesting mm. things is that White Heat is much more. I mean, it's it's much more sort of acclaimed in the sense of I think people have heard of it more. Yep. And uh, Night in the City has been a little bit forgotten. But I think that the real key is that White Heat kind of gives us the. <laughs> The happy ending, you know, as it were, it's sort mm, of yeah. it's sort of a feel good crime picture because you know we kind of we kind of end we get the we kind of get the big bombastic you know ending you know the good guys win at the yeah. end you know or the people that were presented as the good guys. Sure. I really like this alternative reading in which he's really misunderstood. Um, <laughs> I, the the more I think about that, the more I'm like, yeah, this is a way better, way more interesting film if you just view it as like they've just entrapped this guy with mental illness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, um, you, you wouldn't have to push the undercover cop very far before he ends up manipulating the whole thing. I mean, you, you know, it's not in the film, but you could make a version of the story where the undercover cop is actually completely entrapping him and actually ends up egging him on and leading him into, you know what I mean? Like, you could do, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I could definitely see a remake of White Heat. You know, hey, Hollywood, yeah. give us a few million dollars. We're, yeah, we're we'll, we'll get it done. <laughs> just uh, just keep Nicolas Cage away from it because <laughs> when, when, when it's, because he would... Because uh, as much as I love him, he, he he would try to do it really big, and he would ruin yeah. the film. 
No, I don't ever want to hear Nick Cage yelling top of the world, Mar. That, yeah. that's, that's an instant weenie shrinker, I'm afraid. In, in, right. unless, <laughs> unless you get Werner Herzog to direct. And then, <laughs> uh, okay. All bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> Werner Herzog directs Nicolas Cage in a mental illness-themed remake of White Heat. Nice. I'm, I'm down for this. Yeah. But you know, like, I mean, that's, but I think you're right, Daniel, about the difference between the films, because if the people that wrote Night in the City had written White Heat, the copper would have died too. There's no quite like, he'd have gone, he'd have I mean, the, the White Heat, White Heat makes it, like, almost, uh, I mean, at one point, the, uh, uh, Cagney thinks he shot him. Yeah. Because of the, the the smoke that's kind of going on in that in that moment, like oh yeah, I got you, copper, and then he gets away. Like explicitly, the cop gets away because they have to be the heroes in that. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is sort of an interesting dynamic. Um, yeah. Well, and I do like the fact that it is the undercover copper who's also the marksman who takes the final shot. I mean, that's actually quite because there's there's something quite bleak about that. Like you've been. I mean, I know he doesn't like him, but you've been living next to this guy. You know, you've yep. been up close and personal with him for a long time now. You've been in prison with him. You've helped him escape. You've been in his gang. And now you're, you're just, you know, you're putting a bullet in him. You're ending him. And that's really, that's dark. Has, I mean, they play it like Several times. <laughs> yeah, he does. That's true. Yeah, he put several bullets in him. Appar- apparently low velocity bullets just, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we're done. Two great yeah. movies this week, though. Like you know, but yeah. uh, really, really phenomenal stuff. Yeah, I'll yeah, just no, go right. to uh, two quick little uh, bits. Uh, this was Dasan's last, basically the end of his career in America, because right while he was doing this, he was being uh, investigated for affiliations with the Communist Party. So that, that whole thing was going on, and by the time he had finished the film, he had basically moved to France full time and eventually continued his career there. And thankfully, actually, he probably. You can argue he had his best uh, success afterwards, just filming abroad instead of filming in America. He was orig- he was eventually welcomed back, but uh, you know his his career changed while he was doing this film. And the only other thing I'll mention here is so there's an American and a British version of this. The American version is 95 minutes, and uh, apparently it cuts a bunch out and uses different titles, credits, uh, different opening scene. And uh, uses different, totally different music as well. Apparently, it's a little less dark than the uh, British version, and I think we all saw the British version. So, so thankfully, that's the good one. Apparently, <laughs> I should mention. I, for, I think I forgot to mention the DVD info for uh, White Heat as well. So, I'll go to that first. There's a 2005 and 2007 DVD releases for for White Heat from Warner Brothers, and then there's a Blu-ray called the Ultimate Gangsters Collection from Warner Brothers. It contains Little Caesar, The Petrified Forest, The Public Enemy, and White Heat. That was released in 2013, so that's probably your best bets over here for Region 1 stuff. And as for the DVD for Night and the City, Criterion released a one-disc in 2005 that was the American version and they later re-released a DVD that was a two-disc in 2015 that had both versions on it and also a Blu-ray version of that. So uh, that would be your best bet there is to go for Criterion. Uh, I do want to uh, just – I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. The British version is longer, but it but that's the version that has the upbeat ending. The American version is apparently the, the good version. Oh, okay. The yeah. upbeat ending. Well, the uh, – <laughs> The ending, what? well, the ending where what's her face, uh, the girlfriend, at least you know, she's possibly got a future with the uh, neighbor or whatever, you know. Right, so, right. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Attack that. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, no, screw that. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to commit to Bleak, fucking commit. <laughs> Just get it done. Cause, <laughs> so, Kit, it was uh, lovely having you once again. Please tell everyone uh, where they can find you and buy your stuff and all the little projects you're uh, doing right right now. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, oh, yes, buy my stuff. So, if you want to buy my fiction, because you want to hear me uh, make up stories where bad things happen to people, which is mainly what I do, uh, at Amazon.com or .co.uk, search under Books for Kit Power, you'll find everything I've had published, whether it's uh, novels, novellas, collections, all that kind of stuff. It'll all come up there. If you want the ebooks, uh, all of my stuff's Kindle exclusive. Uh, you can get it if you're Kindle Unlimited subscriber. You can read all my stuff for free, uh, and I will still get paid. So that's please do that. And uh, if you want the paperbacks, uh, you can get the paperbacks from Amazon as well, but you can also order them through your local independent bookshop if you would rather. And frankly, I would rather you did if you have the opportunity to do so. I podcast Watching Robocop with Kit Power, where I sit and watch the greatest movie ever made and record the conversation with a friend. Uh, Both Lee and Daniel have been prior guests on that show. I'm sure we'll be returning guests at some point as well as as we find other movies to watch. I have a Patreon which funds both that project and my non-fiction monthly column so uh, head on over to patreon forward slash kit power if you would like early access to lots of my work in exchange for just one dollar a month give that a look thank you very much yeah excellent daniel where can people find you you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. All my stuff goes up there, so that's probably the easiest thing to do. I'll mention I, I do a podcast with um, Kit and a couple of the people that you've heard on this podcast before called Wrong With Authority. We have oh, an yeah. upcoming episode, which is nearly five hours long, covering <laughs> The Wolf of Wall Street and The Big Short. So um, if you want to learn all, everything there is to know about the credit, credit market, please... <laughs> Go listen to that episode when it comes out, which I think it should be coming out pretty soon. So, Very uh, soon, yeah. Okay. Yeah, right on. And, of course, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can find our links to iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook. Please join the Facebook group. It's the single best way to get in contact with us and find out what's coming up on the show. And next episode, whenever that is, is going to be... The police serve the citizens and the heroin busters. So we're going to go back to some more uh, policioteski, uh, some nice uh, European crime films again. Uh, so looking forward to that, definitely. Once again, thank you, Kit, for uh, joining in. It's always fun to have you. Yeah, cool. No, thanks for, thanks for having me back on the show. It was a real pleasure. And, and, and again, Daniel, thanks particularly for the Night in the City recommendation because uh, that's, that's a real joy. And I'm glad to have the DVD on my shelf. Yeah, no, and uh, ditto, thank you for finally getting me to watch White Heat, so. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, thank you all for listening, and we will be back when we are back. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes and links to our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook group, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to other podcasts and websites of similar interest. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review. Please join our Facebook group as it's the single best place to get in contact with the hosts and to know what's coming up on the podcast. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>